Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you and we thank you together that we can approach you and your throne. In Christ, you have made us co-heirs with your Son, and you have adopted us out of the kingdom of darkness. In Christ, we can come to you and express our gratefulness, our suffering, and the desires of our hearts. And in Christ, we are welcomed into your presence even now. Lord, we begin by confessing our ongoing need for your mercy. You created us from nothing, and you have the rights of creator and Lord to distinguish good and evil. But we have each in some way taken that right from you and called it our own. We have held grudges when you have called us to forgive one another. We have been anxious when you have called us to trust you and to not be afraid. We are prone to being deceived and distracted from being faithful to you. Lord, we confess that the pull of the world is strong and tempting, and we feel the pull and sometimes are taken down by it. Please have mercy on us, forgive us for our sin, and in Christ, see the covenant between us restored unbreakably. Lord, we pray for the churches in northern Burkina Faso as they are struggling with food and other resources. Please speed the funds that this church is sending for those churches. We ask that the banks would transfer the money quickly and without any delay. Give Marcel quick opportunity to obtain food and to deliver it to those who need it. Give those churches protection from the violent attacks and upheaval happening around them. Help them to know what it means to have you as their protector. And as they trust in you, let evangelism and your gospel and your glory be on full display. Father, we thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. Even if our requests seem unmet, we know your will as at work. We thank you for answering prayers for relief from illness and pain. We thank you for answering prayers for relief from addiction. We thank you for answering prayers for provision. And we pray for those who are continuing to wait on you for healing and relief and provision. We ask for patience to bear up under the weight, and we ask for your peace to fill us to overflowing. Now, Lord, as we turn our attention to the preaching of your word, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say to us. Remove our preconceived notions of the text so that we can hear its truth. Remove the barriers that we put up to keep us from hearing something that we desperately need to hear. Help us to assume a proper position of humility before you, our Creator and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You can have a seat. And you can open up to Revelation 13, verse 11. That's where we'll begin today. It is wonderful to worship together with you on this Palm Sunday. How many of you forgot that it was Palm Sunday? Raise your hand. Yeah, that's the trouble with being Protestants. Sometimes we forget these things, right? But it is Palm Sunday, and we're thankful for what the Lord did on that day as it led up to our salvation. Well, over the years, in listening to sermons, dealing with false gospels versus true gospels, 
I've often heard it stated that in order to, genif- uh, to identify the genuine versus counterfeit, uh, the, the metaphor works for currency, the idea of genuine versus counterfeit currency. And the thought is, is if you just focus on what the genuine looks like, you won't fall for the counterfeit. Now, this idea is passed on and used as a metaphor for the gospel, the truth of the Bible. It's been said, no, the true gospel and all the fake gospels will be obvious to spot. And there is indeed, there is indeed a part of that that is true. We should be experts in the true gospel. Amen? Amen. But there are three quick questions I have about this line of thought in Christianity. And you don't have to write these down. Just listen for a moment. First, if that were all that was needed, why is Paul quoted as saying, do not be deceived multiple times? And why does he call us to not be ignorant of Satan's designs on multiple occasions? Why does Peter tell us to be constantly vigilant against Satan's deceptions? Second, why are so many Christians confused when it comes to our role in judging the theology and fruit of other self-professed Christians so that we might contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints? So many Christians do not use the Word of God as the lens through which to see valid professions of faith, but rather they test if a person is nice or uses Christianese language. And lastly, if knowing only the genuine article is all that is needed, why does John, at the inspiration and revelation of Jesus, spend so much time in the book of Revelation outlining what we need to be aware of with regard to the counterfeit trinity? the counterfeit God, counterfeit Savior, and what we will see today in the counterfeit spirit and counterfeit church. It seems that the apostolic witness that is presented in God's word proclaims clearly that we are to be aware of Satan's designs and know that at every turn his primary weapon is deception and perversion of the faith. From as far back as the garden, we know that Satan cannot create anything. He can only take what God has designed and twist it to his own unholy use. And so our text this morning, with last week's text as background, is going to be a powerful tool so that we might not be left unaware of how Satan operates. Last week, we heard a cautionary tale and a call to the church for perseverance in the faith. This week, what we will hear is a call to recognize the counterfeit spirit and its counterfeit mark. A call to recognize the counterfeit spirit and its counterfeit mark. So let's go ahead and dive into Revelation 13, verses 11 through 18, and hear what Jesus is speaking to his church. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. 
Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Remember that chapters 12 and 13 are the center point, both structurally and thematically, of Revelation. And it's here that Satan and his agents that act out his will on earth are unmasked so that their deception is made clear. The entire goal and strategy is to deceive the nations, and they do so not through providing a blatantly opposite truth, but by perverting and counterfeiting God's truth. In chapter 12, we saw the dragon attempting to pass himself off as the counterfeit creator God. There was Exodus imagery used to describe the warfare that the dragon undertakes against God's people. But perhaps the greatest way in which Satan attempts to be the counterfeit God is that he has sent his agent, the beast, as a false savior. We saw throughout Revelation 13, 1 through 10 last week, that the beast is a perversion of the lamb of chapter 5. The beast is an image of the dragon, while the lamb is the perfect image of the father. The beast has ten crowns and blasphemous names, whereas we will see that the true Christ is crowned with many crowns and has many worthy names. The dragon has given the beast his usurped power, false throne, and limited authority, whereas the father has given his true son, the son of man, all his power, an everlasting throne, and his ultimate authority. And most obviously, the true Savior attracts and makes war through his death and resurrection, by which he reconciles creation to God. Whereas the beast seemed to have a mortal wound, but then seemed to come alive, as nation-states always do. The beast makes war against the lamb and his saints, while the lamb makes war against the beast. And so we've been presented with a counterfeit God and his agent, a counterfeit Savior. But to fill out the counterfeit Trinity, what are we missing? A spirit, a counterfeit spirit that directs worship to the false Savior and ultimately gives glory to the false God. And that is what we see first in 13, 11 through 13, as we look at the land beast as the counterfeit spirit. The land beast as the counterfeit spirit. The first beast, the sea beast, was the counterfeit Messiah and king. He came out of the sea. In so doing, he is mocking the creation account with imagery that the dragon is attempting to bring forth his perverse creation out of the waters just as the true triune creator God did in Genesis chapter 1. But our beast here today rises instead out of the earth. So for distinction, we will call it the land beast today. And it begins to mock the powerful working that only the Holy Spirit can perform in resurrection, as it is described as rising out of the earth. It's a picture of false resurrection. And this beast is described with two horns, notice the word, like a lamb, like a lamb. 
Notice the similarity while also being just off enough to be perverse. How do we know it's perverse? Because it first seems like the lamb of chapter 5, and it seems like it has authority of two horns, which are mimicking the two witnesses, the two lampstands, and the two olive trees that we've already seen. The false spirit is both pointing to a perverse lamb and acting to build a perverse prophetic witness in a counterfeit community of deceived people allegiant to the dragon and his beast. This testimony will not point to the glory of the one true creator God, but it will instead sound like the dragon with language that seems smooth, and it flatters arrogant, rebellious, hard-hearted hearts and minds. Interestingly, this agent of the beast, who itself is an agent of the dragon, exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. And through this perverse version of complementarianism, this equal but different agent causes the earth dwellers, the inhabitants of the earth, to worship the sea beast, and in so doing, ultimately worship the dragon. For comparison, listen to how Jesus describes the third person of the true Trinity, the Holy Spirit. This is from John 16, 13 through 15. He says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, in other words, not himself, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In the gospel, according to his name, John the Revelator paints a picture of the Holy Spirit. Via this quote of Jesus, that you'll notice is the exact mirror opposite and yet highly reflective of the counterfeit of the land beast and his part in the unholy, perverse, counterfeit trinity of the dragon. He will not be the dragon, but he will utter words that sound like the dragon. He will point to the, the sea beast. Just as the Holy Spirit glorifies not himself, but the Christ, and ultimately the Father, the land beast glorifies not itself, but the false savior of the sea beast and ultimately the dragon. The way in which it directs the worship of the earth dwellers, notice, is through signs and wonders. And notice that rather than a personification of he in verse 13, as we would use for the person of the Holy Spirit, John uses an it to further signify this false spirit's sub-creation and beastly status. The great signs it performs point to it being a false Moses, and the fire from heaven point to it being a false Elijah. Just as the two witnesses of chapter 11 symbolize God's presence and spirit being incarnate in the prophetic witness of the body of Christ, the true church, this symbolizes that the land beast will become incarnate as well in the counterfeit body of the false church subversively hidden among the visible church as tares among the wheat. Now, you may have heard of this land beast spoken of before as the false prophet, which is partially correct because it will act as a kind of counterfeit prophetic witness. But rather than seeing this as an individual evil toady of some charismatic world leader with a name like Nikolai Carpathia, or whatever it was in the Left Behind series, 
Recognize it is more of a spirit that pervades groups and communities and societies as an entity within the collective, just as the Holy Spirit pervades the church, the community of new covenant faithful. There may be individuals that, yes, loom large at points in the timeline of the church age, and it is not out of the realm of possibility that there will be a single leader at the head of the pack of false prophets at some time near the return of Christ. But that is not the overall emphasis of Scripture. For example, three times in his letters, this same author of Revelation, John, notes that the spirit of the Antichrist is not found in a person, but dwells in false truth and deception in the false church. Take a look up on the screen at 1 John 2.18. John said, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Remember, folks, he wrote this in the first century because the death and resurrection of Christ initiated the last days. We have been in the last days for 2,000 years. God is not slow. And so, because it was true then, it is true today that the Antichrist is a collective spirit that dwells and empowers anyone who would undercut the truth of God's word anyone who would promote a false gospel, and anyone who would deny worship to Christ alone, the Christ of the Bible, not of our own making. Now, as we have mentioned, it would be very easy if Satan made a completely different group or a completely different and opposing gospel. But Satan is deceptive, isn't he? And so he takes the truth and he tweaks it just slightly. He takes God's good gifts of economic provision and religious truth, and he tweaks them. He can't create anything new, so he tweaks it from the truth just enough. People then believe they are following the truth when they are actually on a completely different trajectory that begins close to the truth but ends up in complete opposition to it. Think of how many Christians you've talked to, maybe you're one of them, who believe you know what the Bible says and will state that you have read the Bible, but in actuality, your view of religion and theology is of your own making, or maybe a conglomeration of some of the sermons you've heard over the years from other people. It's not actually from the Bible. Well, this perversion of truth that Satan promotes is often very compelling, is it not? For example, the biblical statement, God is love. Is that true? Amen, it is. But false prophets will take even this, contort and pervert it, and say, because God is love, we must act in a love that never convicts, never holds people accountable. We must love unconditionally. How many times have you heard that stated in churches? Using the world's definition of love, the spirit of deception draws people into its clutches, away from God's truth, so that when God's truth is presented, it is unfathomable and even hateful to the earth dweller because their eyes have been blinded and their hearts hardened to the truth. God is mentioned, or a piece of his word is used, or similar language to the truth is used, but then it is contorted so that someone or some group other than Christ and his kingdom are glorified and obeyed. 
False prophets and false Christians will promote and encourage compromise with the culture's idolatrous institutions. The apostles gave us stark warnings about this. Listen to the words of Peter in 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Notice that word secretly. Even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Friends, notice what this is saying. This is saying people will come in and use the name Jesus, use the word the gospel, use the word the Bible, but they will be using it perversely. And in so doing, it's not that they will deny the name Jesus, but they will deny the character of Jesus as it is shown in Scripture. A Jesus who is both Savior and Judge. Now friends, if you flounder in your submission to the blatant truth of God's Word and believe you can pick and choose what you agree with or not, you are deceived. Today, Christ is calling you to repent and submit completely to the truth of his word. And if you are merely confused as to what the word of God says, then there are leaders in this church, especially we as elders, who would love and relish the chance to sit down with you and go through God's word together so that truth can reign in your life. But what we ask is that we start at the foundation that we collectively submit to this word, not our own opinions about this word. If we let ourselves stand in indecision on the topic of submission to God's word, we will fall for what we see next, which is the deceptive activity of the land beast. The deceptive activity of the land beast. This counterfeit spirit that we saw in the first few verses there, it's the link between the earth dwellers and the land beast. Let's take a look there, starting in verse 13 and going through verse 15. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. We've already gone through that. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed Notice this use of allowed. God is allowing it. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Again, this counterfeit spirit is the link between the earth dwellers and the land beast. Just as the true Holy Spirit connects God to his people 
because he is both in the presence of God and draws God's people into that presence. Similarly, the counterfeit spirit is pictured as doing the same with the beast and the earth dwellers. It draws the deceived into worship of the beast. To paint this picture, John is utilizing imagery. Notice that word image used over and over. He's using imagery that is easily recalled from the Old Testament in the book of Daniel that we went through a few months ago, over a year now probably. Uh, Would you turn there with me to Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1? We'll come back to Revelation 13, but go to Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Give me a hearty amen when you get there. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the, excuse me, of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. He's repeating this list partially for memorization, but also these are all the authorities. There is no other authority. He's causing all the authorities to do what? To come and bow down. Verse 4, and the herald uh, proclaimed... Loud, you are commanded, O, notice, peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, you know the rest of the story. The rest of this chapter is the story of the three young men going into the fiery furnace and being protected in its midst by a fourth figure that looks like the Son of God, the Son of Man, Uh, and then they, they leave and they are unharmed. Friends, this is the imagery that John is using back in Revelation 13, which is so important for the early church. Would you turn back there with me? This is the background imagery. You see, in the first century, which is where Revelation was written to originally, you had the demonic state of the Roman Empire, the beast of the state, as we talked about last time. And it was led by an emperor, similar to Nebuchadnezzar. But to give the demonic state full power over the people, both the economic and religious systems needed to be tied in. And so the religious system of the emperor and his worship was built. Altars were made in every Roman city and in front of homes to worship through things like taxes and burning of incense in honor of the emperor. To remind citizens of the state who they were to honor, statues would be built in every major city that were in the image and likeness of the emperor. The world of the first century Roman Empire was far more like the story of Nebuchadnezzar and his narcissistic self-worship than we can probably even grasp. The economic system was tied in as well as the very image of the incarnate God of the emperor 
was placed on the means of provision, the very money that people used to survive in the Roman Empire. They were to see themselves as the ones called to worship the image of the emperor, the image of the beast. Now, this was the system in which the persecuted Christians of the first century found themselves. Now, to to not participate in this state-sponsored idolatry of emperor worship often meant being ostracized from society that was centered in the cult temples. It often meant poverty, as economic gains were greatly tied to these temples. In fact, the very, what we would call unions of the day, the trade guilds, they had a central god, a pagan god that you would worship. And if you did not do so, you would not be enrolled in the unions. So we can read back through chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation and start to see the calls for perseverance and the persecution that resulted from this intertwined idolatrous system that the first century Christians were facing. The early church was prompted then to look to the story of Daniel as a parable of their own lives. They were called, like the three Hebrew youths of Daniel 3, to stand firm in the midst of persecution. These three in Daniel refused to give allegiance to the beastly state religion and were thrown into persecution in the fiery furnace, but emerged unscathed. And so the first century Christians were likewise to endure persecution, knowing they would emerge from its fires purified and in union with the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Boy, it's a good thing we don't live in a world where the state, the economy, and the secular religion are all intertwined, right? He said with immense sarcasm. We must recognize that some would say, but... There is a separation of church and state in the United States. Friends, this is how subversive and deceptive Satan has gotten. He's improved over the centuries in his game. It's almost imperceptible at this point so that self-professed Christians are falling left and right for false gospels. But some would say, some would protest, we don't have false saviors in the form of the government. We don't build Roman-esque temples with columns and statues to our false savior leaders. We don't put their faces on our money. And we don't ask people to submit to their tyrannous authority, no matter what they tell us to do. To which I would answer, you are far more deceived than you even know. But even then, folks, I don't think that is what this is primarily speaking to in Revelation 13. Just as with most of the imagery in Revelation, this is speaking to a spiritual truth that works its way out in demonic, deceptive means that are more widely applicable than just the first century application. Notice in Revelation 13 the specific activity of this counterfeit spirit. It deceives, but then it causes the earth dwellers themselves, the deceived themselves, to make an image for the false savior. He doesn't have to make the image. The people do it themselves. The counterfeit spirit then gives breath to this image. This is a bit different, isn't it, than what's in Daniel. He gives breath to this image so that this image can speak and give prophetic witness of the dragon and his power. And in so doing, call more earth dwellers to worship the dragon and the beast and persecute those who do not. 
Friends, all of these statements collectively speak to a false body being created by the beast that is the counterfeit body of Christ. A body of the beast mimicking the body of Christ. Now, this aligns so well with the rest of Scripture, and especially thematic ideas throughout the Bible on this idea of image-bearing. And so, as we often do, let's pause for a moment to bring forward into our understanding the biblical theology upon which John is relying here in Revelation 13, speaking of building an image. In the beginning, God created a world that reflects himself. Specifically, he wanted to give humanity the authority to be his representative rulers. So Genesis 1 says that we were created in his image. The Hebrew word there is tselem. Everybody say tselem. It's like Salem, but with a T on the front. Tselem. The word very woodenly translated means small idols or statues. We were to be the idols of God, not like idol worship, but statues, images of him. And so it's been a teaching of both Judaism and Christianity since their inceptions that every human is created in utero in the imago Dei, or the image of God. And this calls us to treat every human with a certain value that God has given them. Amen? Amen. Innately, every human is a statue or a likeness that reflects the true God in their basic humanity. Now, one of the main indications of humanity's authorized rule was that we had authority over the beasts of creation. Do you recall that from Genesis? We had authority over the beasts. But in the fall, we gave the authority that we had over to the beastly serpent, the adversary of God. In this willful act, the head of humanity tarnished the image of God that we reflected and began the journey to being subhuman or beastly ourselves. Our image bearing of God started to be polluted, and our image bearing of the beast started to occur. And this is why Genesis 5:3 is a very interesting passage. Notice what it says about the progeny of Adam. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after whose image? His image, and named him Seth. I could make so many jokes about our worship leader right now, but I will refrain. The likeness of God, dear friends, was not removed, but it was tarnished by sin. It was polluted. And this original sin, and mankind can never on its own, resurrect itself from this original sin, it was placed into humanity. Spiritual death occurred of which we cannot resurrect ourselves. Just because we are image bearers of God does not mean we can resurrect the spiritually dead. The entire good news of the Bible, though, is that God, therefore out of a perfect and faithful love for his creation sent his own son to deal with this situation and the sin. Jesus came to humanity, and he alone is the perfect image of the Father. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
His image, his image-bearing capability was not polluted. Jesus showed the image of God through his ministry and preaching, and then Jesus showed the exact imprint of God's steadfast, faithful, and loving character by dying on the cross for the sins he did not commit in your place and mine. He then resurrected from the dead, defeating death, hell, and sin itself to be enthroned at the right hand of the Father in all glory. Are you with me so far? At that point, Jesus also poured out his spirit into his converted new covenant people to begin building up an exact image of himself in what scripture calls his body, the church. Just as the Father breathed life into Adam, Jesus breathes new life by his Holy Spirit into his converted disciples. Look at John 20, 21 through 23. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In other words, to be image bearers. And when he had said this, he, notice the word, breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. He breathes and gives them the Holy Spirit and in so doing gives them his authority as well. Are you starting to see the counterfeit in Revelation 13? Christ's body now has the mission of declaring his image to the world collectively as we serve one another until, as Paul says, we grow up to be his full image. Go see Ephesians 4 for that truth. We don't have time for it today. Every local body and the collective church universal is meant to be image bearers in our covenant faithfulness and service and love to one another and our obedience to God's word. So every human, dear friends, this biblical theme of image-bearing, every human is growing further in a reflection, further in image-bearing every day of our lives. We are either deceived in our original sin and our rebellious nature and are growing further into the beastly image that reflects the beast, or we are being converted by his Spirit. Embracing the lordship of Christ and his truth and participating in his new covenant body to reflect his image to the world. Friends, you are either part of the satanically empowered body that has a false life being breathed into it, or you are part of the new covenant body that reflects the image of Jesus to the world. There is no center option. There is no third path. Changed by his spirit, we then, as his disciples, discipline the beastliness within in hope of the future resurrection in which all of the beastly sin within and the beastly sin in our world will once again be fully subject to the reign of Christ and ultimately will be destroyed. Paul encapsulates all of what I have just presented to you so well when he says this to the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49. Thus it is written, Paul says, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. First Adam is the Adam from Genesis. Second Adam is Christ. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of the dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust earth dwellers, in the words of Revelation. 
And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven, heaven dwellers, in the words of Revelation. Just as we have been born, uh, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Friends, moment by moment, decision by decision, action by action, you and I and every living human is growing more into an image bearer, either polluting further the image of God to look more like the beast or of walking in the redemption of Christ to look more like him. And so being saturated now with this understanding of biblical theology around image bearing, we can go back and refocus on Revelation 13 and see the counterfeit spirit, the land beast, empowering the earth dwellers to construct an image, a demonic body, if you will, that has received a counterfeit breath whose collective rebellion against God aligns with the dragon and fights against the lamb and his people. Remember that the words in both Hebrew and Greek for breath are the same word as spirit. In breathing, he's giving a spirit. The counterfeit spirit is allowed to breathe a counterfeit and limited life into a counterfeit and limited collective body. Let's read it again, verse 13. This counterfeit spirit performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. This is a counterfeit beast, giving limited life into a counterfeit and limited collective body. And so we see him then completing the work by giving the seal of a counterfeit community. The seal of a counterfeit community. Historically, marks like the one talked about in verses 16 and 17 were used for branding or tattooing disobedient slaves or soldiers or giving to loyal devotees to gods of various religions. This marking and sealing is obviously also used in terms of currency because currency often bears the image of the idolatrous savior of a people. But let's take a look at it here and see what it says. Verse 16, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. And so historically, this mark was used for those reasons, but more importantly, please view this in the context of what has already been laid out in Revelation as the mark of the Lamb. Do you guys remember the sealing? or the protection of God's people symbolized by the 144,000, the perfect whole governmental number of the true Israel of God in chapter 7. Do you guys recall that? Yeah? And we called it the mark of the Lamb. This mark that the beast uses here in Revelation 13 is not the one that should get all the press. This isn't a revelation of Satan. This is a revelation of who? Oh, please. This isn't a revelation of Satan. This is a revelation of who? Everybody? There we go. I just had to give you time. It's Jesus. 
Jesus' mark, the mark of the Lamb, is the focus of this book. This beastly mark in Revelation 13 is simply a pathetic counterfeit to the holy mark of the Lamb. But John does not make this up. It has biblical background and significance. For the mark of the Lamb that we saw in chapter 7, it is a more perfect Shema. And the mark of the land beast is the counterfeit. It's the anti-Shema. If you don't know what I mean by Shema, let's go back to Deuteronomy 6. We heard it earlier. Go ahead and keep your finger in Revelation 13 and go back to Deuteronomy 6. I'm hoping you all are so quiet because you're all thinking, this is not what Left Behind told me. This is way different. Praise God, we're telling the truth. Okay, Deuteronomy 6, and take a look in verse 3 there. Hear, therefore, the word in Hebrew for hear is Shema. Everybody say Shema. So this is the great hear, the great Shema. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, them being the commands of God, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the great Shema itself. Shema, O Yisrael, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Notice, you shall bind them as a sign on where? Your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, also known as your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Skip forward to verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. In other words, the idolatrous culture that surrounds you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Go ahead and go back to Revelation 13. The Shema makes use symbolically of the forehead that represents commitment in mind and heart to God and symbolically makes use of the hand, which shows the outworking of that commitment in action. Just as the mark of the Lamb in chapter 7 of Revelation seals and signifies the army of God's people, the counterfeit seal of the beast seals and signifies the army of the serpent who purposefully enmesh themselves to the intertwined state, secular religion, and economic entities. Friends, the politics and religion and economics of the first century were deeply intertwined to promote the worship of Caesar that we've already looked at. And again, we might think, luckily we don't have that problem today. But friends, it's even more subversive and deceptive in our day. Please hear me. Democracy, rightly used, is a great tool. Capitalism and free market, rightly and equitably utilized, promote prosperity and hard work. And a Judeo-Christian religion, rightly proclaimed, promote peace and lawlessness. I am a fan of all three. I think they are the best among the evils of this world. But any 
or all of these taken and perverted become a means of idolatry. Democracy, capitalism, and the consumeristic false gospel of American Christianity that makes us think we have to market Jesus Christ have intertwined to cause worship of the ultimate American God, the self. In all three, the consumer, the voter, or the attendee with a social media account suddenly become the ultimate authority. They become God. By our ideologies and our actions, we have become the worshipers of self more so than any other society ever. And we are lying to ourselves if we think we are more Christian when one party is in power than the other. Yes, one party absolutely might do some things that are more in the image of Christ. But the state is not the Savior. Commentator Vern Poitras puts it well when he says this. Successful modern democratic governments are not literally killing people as in the first century. They do not need to as long as their idolatrous programs are so successful. They tend not toward paternal severity, but toward maternal smothering. Ain't that the truth? The state undertakes to help you by stuffing you with what is good for you according to its supposedly enlightened, beneficent judgment. And if you do not agree... You are socially unfit and maladapted. Does this sound like the last two years? The old you must be killed, socially speaking, by social engineering in order that the new you may function as an upstanding, healthy citizen of the state. To this end, the state uses education, financial penalties, financial inducements, endless regulations, and bureaucrats overseeing and directing your decisions. No, we Christians in such a country do not feel the immediate threat of the sword, but untangling ourselves from the clinging web of idolatry is like death. For the web exists inside us as well as outside in the ways in which we have already, as members of our society, absorbed its godless assumptions. That's good. Because it's true. Friends, to what extent do you participate in this individualistic society or religion? Have you become enmeshed and you don't even know it? A quick remedy to this is to submit yourself to God's word as the only source of authority so that you judge all other authorities, especially the state, by its truth, not your own or their own. Put your hope in Christ's salvation, not the salvation of the state. And secondly, another remedy is a remedy to consumerism, which is to submit yourself to a local body of Christ's covenant community in humble membership to his spirit-filled church. How do you kill a consumeristic Christianity? You give yourself up to the body. Stop being a consumer. Just as the gospel of Jesus Christ has opened the doors of faith to every tribe, language, and nation, and every person small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, the counterfeit gospel that is promoted by the false spirit in the midst of the counterfeit community has attracted humanity from all times 
and all places and all castes. Christ has brought together his true followers who are being purified by his word to be presented as what we will see later as a beautiful bride. But friends, in the exact same locations, often intertwined in the visible church, amongst the true church, Satan is using the counterfeit gospels that are surrounding us to diminish the image of God so that he might control what we will see later referred to in Revelation as a harlot, not a pure bride, but a prostitute that will join herself to any and all idolatrous ideas. This picture is the picture of the counterfeit community full of counterfeit Christians that dwell amongst the visible church. This is quickly confirmed, too, as we look to the first verse of chapter 14 that we'll go into detail on the week after Easter. Look at 14.1 really quickly. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him the sealed 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their what? What's that word there? Foreheads. Foreheads. The seal of the true church versus the seal of the false church. What we have in chapter 13 is the contrasted, contrary, and counterfeit mark of the false church. Friends, Satan has so confused the church that many who are obsessed about end times prophecy spend all their time looking out there in the world for the false prophet and the beast. They read the newspaper thinking, could this person's name be 666? They believe that Satan will be so dumb and blatant, that it will be obvious to the church so that the church has to be raptured out of the world so that Satan can have his way. But John is presenting here that we must be more perceptive than that. For the false spirit, as John said in his first letter, the spirit that deceives is not just out there. Yes, it is out there. But this false spirit is very much in here, meaning in the church, currently operating amidst so-called Christian congregants and leaders that do not submit to the lordship that is exercised through God's word and God's people. I'll give you a hint. Do you know how many times we've been called a cult because we do church discipline in this church? You're not Christians because you do church discipline. I don't know. Maybe we get it from God's word and command. So what does that make a church who doesn't do church discipline? At the very least, very deceived and unhealthy. At most, false. A false church. Yes, I know that's a heavy statement. And yes, I know I'm judging another church's fruit, like we're commanded to. Remember in chapters 2 and 3 how often John described the various heretics that dwell among the visible church. He uses metaphors like synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jews but are not, those who call themselves apostles but are not, those who hold the teachings of Balaam or the Nicolaitans, those who tolerate the spirit of Jezebel among you, and so on. He even says to the church at Pergamum that Satan dwells among you. Huh? Listen to the warnings of Jesus to his followers, Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Listen to the warning of Paul from our earlier reading in 2 Corinthians 11. This is 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 15. 
Paul says, what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He disguises himself in righteousness. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is Paul fighting against false teachers that in the first century had infiltrated the true church. How much more so is this true now? And even with these warnings and this imagery and revelation, there are so many self-professed Christians among the visible church that are offended when false gospels, false leaders, and false churches are called out because to contend for the faith in the mind of the earth-dwelling, deceived, self-styled Christian is mean or unloving or ungracious. Ask me how I know. I've been told that many times as I constantly warn you to watch out for deceptive teachers. Some of you today, right now, you're frustrated with me because I'm being mean. No, I'm reading you the word of God. Amen. The goats readily accept the wolf among them as they are devoured. But the sheep bleed out for their shepherd to save them and to remove the wolves. And so this is why I so appreciate how John finishes this text. Because he next and finally issues a call to the true church for discernment. A call to the true church for discernment. Verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man and his number is 666. Here we are. We've finally arrived at one of the most mystified, fictionalized, misused, abused, and mocked verses in all the Bible. First, let me just say, with all my being, with all humility and repentance to you at the fact that I used to teach this verse quite differently in my deception, with all due respect to those who disagree, and with deep love for Christ's church, this verse was never intended to speak of a barcode, microchip, vaccine, passport, or any other obvious external object. That is not its point. Never has been, never will be. If it was, it would have been employed in the time of the first century Christians, who are the main audience for this revelation. So then, what is it? If it's not that, what is it? Well, there is a slight possibility that we have to be open to that John was using this language to communicate through symbolic numerics that the Roman Caesar at the time was acting as a beast, that the state at the time was acting as a beast. In the use of what is known as gematria, in which you substitute letters for numbers, you can arrive at a Hebrew transliteration of the name Nero Caesar. But unfortunately, this falls apart when we realize that most likely Domitian was the Caesar at the time of Revelation, not Nero. And gematria is not a strong tool because like most other Bible codes, that have been promoted, you can make pretty much anything say anything. One commentator puts it well when he says, we cannot infer much from the fact that a key fits a lock if it is a lock in which almost any key will turn it. <laughs> now to use these numbers far more particularly than we have used any other numbers in Revelation should tell us we're going in the wrong direction. 
Throughout Revelation, we have seen numbers stand for spiritual realities, seven trumpets, seven seals, seven bowls, seven, seven, seven. The fullness of God's authority is seen in this triple seven. Triple six, 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 in contrast, is an incomplete number, incomplete authority that refuses to bow to the complete authority of seven, 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 and will therefore be destroyed when that authority reigns in fullness. The word for man there could just as easily be humanity. It is the number of humanity. John is not asking us to use our mental capacity to calculate a simple numerological code that anyone, even those allegiant to the beast, could uncover. He is calling us to lean into the Holy Spirit and the word rightly interpreted, to discern when something, some group, some ideology or movement or someone is pulling us away from the lamb and towards the beast. And the fruit will be evident because we will degenerate into further sin and subhuman beastly attitudes and actions, including making ourselves judge of right and wrong over and above God's word. Whereas with the Lord, we will find ourselves stepping into the fuller nature of who God created us to be when he imbued us with his imago Dei and when he sent his son to die in our stead. We see the fruit that the dehumanizing sin that we've embraced is nailed to the cross when we follow Jesus so that we can grow more and more into his image. Brothers and sisters, I am not giving you a detailed list of those parties and ideologies that I think are beastly this morning because that is not the point. I'm not going to guess at a world leader. Because Jesus is calling for those who are his true covenant people to build our own discernment through reliance on the Holy Spirit, the word of God which he inspired, and the covenant community of his people in which he dwells. The self-titled, potentially deceived Christian is content with a minimal understanding of Scripture, a minimal understanding of theology, and a minimal participation in the body of Christ. And they will go from deception to further deception because counterfeits cannot be discerned and will be mistaken for the real thing. And in so doing, they will be leavened in the body of Christ. But what Revelation calls us to this morning is something far different. It is to lean into the Holy Spirit and his word and his people to gain wisdom in discerning the counterfeit from the genuine. And so this morning, we have a call to recognize the counterfeit spirit and his counterfeit mark on his counterfeit people and distinguish it from the true word, the true spirit, the true mark and the true church. On this Palm Sunday, we are reminded that when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey to fulfill his final week of life and proceeded to the cross for our sins, there were many who said with their mouth, this is the king and savior we've been waiting for. I would like to bow down to him. Some even cried out, Hosanna, which means please save us. But when persecution came or another option came, Many of those same people accepted the counterfeit authority of the state in the Roman government as they crucified Christ. But three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, proving that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that one day all authority will bow at his feet. And so today, dear brothers and sisters, let us lay our hearts and minds and lives at his feet in worship. And ask him to be our king in all things, even in those things which we may not fully understand from his word. 
And let us determine to stop reaching for the counterfeit when the genuine Messiah has so freely given himself to us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's do that now as we sing praise to God and partake of the ordinance he has provided us in communion.